Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. This sermon may be heard as some sort of love note to ASC, or it may be the random nostalgic ramblings of an old windbag fart. (laughs) Possibly both. As a 17-year-old from Chicago, I came to Boston as a delegate to the UUA General Assembly in July of 1969. Youth housing was upstairs on the Clark Room floor. It was sweltering outside, so I chose to sleep outside on the roof under the stars over Boylston Street. I remember being awakened by street sweepers. That General Assembly was tumultuous. Jack Mendelssohn, whose portrait now hangs on the second floor stair landing, was then in his last year as minister here. It was Jack who transformed this church from a smart but nonetheless aloof Boston Brahmin Brooks Brothers elite institution, and he changed it into an engaged religious center with a civic circumference. Jack was perhaps the most important UU minister of the 20th century, a radical Humanist, it was Jack who took down the cross that once once hung in this archway behind me. He was a radical humanist who put the imprint of social and especially racial justice on our UU DNA. When he arrived here, there was a parishioner named Mabel Dodge who thought Jack was too informal a name to occupy this honorable pulpit. She offered to pay the court costs for him to legally change his name to John. (laughs) Jack declined, but Mabel probably did not realize that Jack's legal name was Jacob. Probably Mabel would have been even less approving of a minister here with a Jewish name. It is early in this sermon, but already I digress. Back to the 1969 General Assembly. There was an uproar on the convention floor at the Statler Hilton, now the Park Plaza. 
Delegates refused to prioritize the agenda of many black UUs, and many felt that they, yet again, had been told to move to the back of the bus. Many were ready to quit this whole damn denomination on the spot. At the plenary, Jack went to the microphone and appealed for time to reconsider. He said that he would come here to ASC to think things over. Many black delegates and their white supporters, including me and most of the youth, 400 of us in all, joined the infamous walkout. We did not know if this might be the end of the only eight-year-old Unitarian Universalist Association. Jack's predecessor here was Dana McLean Greeley. He was the first president of the UUA. So Jack, his successor's actions, threatened to destroy the culmination of Dana's dreams. So this was an intensely personal family drama. It was catastrophic. One minister spat on Jack as he left the assembly. Another said that if he had a gun, he would have shot him. I remember the glare of TV lights and tears streaming down my cheeks. A large and motley crew assembled here, and we mourned and counseled and conspired. A magazine printed a photo taken here in this pulpit with me in the pulpit, the photo taken from behind of me speaking. I was wearing a sweater vest, weirdly in the heat. Teenagers sat precariously on the ledges of these balconies, bare legs dangling down. After a couple of days in self-imposed exile, we returned to the Statler, but the hope and the despair, the discord and the harmony of those events echo and reverberate with us still today. This all came to be called the Black Empowerment Controversy, or alternatively, the fit of white entitlement. There are books about this and a movie. One of my Bedford parishioners made Wilderness Journey, the Struggle for Black Empowerment. Google it. You can watch the whole YouTube with interviews of Jack, me, and a whole lot of others on all sides of the whole inspiring, cautionary mess. Lifetime friends were made amidst the tumult. Another youth, Wayne Arneson from Canada, now also a retired minister, and I cooked for the masses, and we didn't know what to do with a huge cauldron of leftover chicken stew. And so one night, uh, we took it out to the alley, and we poured it into a gas or a sewer pipe. We lit matches to see what we were doing and only later wondered if we might have blown up half of Back Bay. I came here for college in 
1970 and then signed the ASC membership book. ASC was the hub of our universe. We lived our values far and wide, but this was our base camp. When I graduated in 1974 without a clue about my future, in, in that office behind me, which Kim calls the froth, but which had previously been known as the Gannett Room, George Whitehouse hired me to work with him at Interfaith at the corner of Beacon and Mass Ave, a multi-service center and shelter care program for Chin's kids, children in need of services, wayward girls. George and I were occasionally mistaken as pimps. I met my first wife at Interfaith. Sue and I are still married. And we were married in that Honeywell Chapel in 1979 in a ceremony that included a communion of strawberries and wine. George officiated wearing white socks. We rented the flowers from a florist next door, and we returned them an hour later. At the reception in the parish hall downstairs, the music was provided by folk singer Carolyn McDade. We are singing two of her hymns today. And UUSC, UU Service Committee President Dick Scobie playing the bagpipes. Go figure, they were the only musicians Sue and I knew, Holly Near having politely declined to perform. We rode the swan boats afterwards and we sang solidarity forever for the union makes us strong. Some years later, I officiated at George's marriage to Gaby at a bar in Providence, but again, I digress. ASC was a happening place. Barney Frank was a freshman state rep for this district, and he reported at breakfasts down in the parish hall. Clem Holden, his portrait now hangs outside the kitchen, and Fran Lawrence did the cooking. Poached fish. And Barney, this was long before he was out, Barney most memorably wore a pair of fire engine red corduroy trousers. Just a few years ago, I reminded him about those pants, and that now sartorially savvy politician, he denied ever having such a thing in his wardrobe. But I swear to you, his pants were like the siren on a ladder truck. On Sundays, people would share joys and concerns from their pews, and one morning in 1977, James Luther Adams, the most significant UU theologian ever, a prophet and a member here, announced from his pew sitting just over there the death 
in South African police custody of anti-apartheid activist Stephen Biko, a martyr of that movement. It was the first time I had ever heard Biko's name. You learned stuff here. Hearts and minds opened here. Here you found allies. Here you were provoked. That same Jim Adams talk, taught a course here on Christian socialism. He was the author of the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on that topic. I attended, and at the very first class, I asked if I could record it with my portable, bulky cassette recorder. He said, sure, but then added, you'll never listen to it. And as usual, he was right. Never have I ever. I have now given those tapes to the Harvard archives. Jack's successor as minister was black humanist Mwalimu Imara. He too was an anti-apartheid activist. Polaroid, based in Cambridge, was targeted by activists because the Polaroid ID2 system allowed apartheid officials to on the spot create the humiliating and hated passbooks that black South Africans were required to carry. I remember one Sunday morning right here at this podium when Mwalimu raised a large Polaroid camera over his head and then slammed it to the floor where it smashed into smithereens. There are things that have happened here that I will never forget. About Mwalimu, his tenure here was controversial. He said he'd preach racial justice here no matter how uncomfortable it made people, even if no one was left to hear him. That nearly happened. He lasted four years, and I was present at the 1974 corporation meeting when he announced his resignation. His voice twisted, tortured, and choked with emotion. Some think his tenure here was a disaster. It was, I think, a tragedy. No doubt he contributed, but I also believe that this congregation was unprepared for the stress and weight of implicit racism that Mwalimu was expected to bear. Eventually, today, I'll tell you a bit of the good trouble I have been getting into lately, but many Sundays, in your name, I am in black churches in Boston, and often I am asked about Mwalimu by elders who admired him. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Don Thompson and his wife Lila were also ASC members of that era. Don was a retired UU minister who had been a freedom writer. 
He served our congregation in Jackson, Mississippi. On August 22, 1965, he was shot and critically injured by the KKK while standing outside his home. He carried bullet fragments in his spine the rest of his life. You don't forget people like that. Next week, I expect to be in Jackson, again, in your name, for the anniversary of the murder of Emmett Till. Parishioner and playwright Gerald Horton wrote chancel dramas that on summer Sundays we performed in the chapel. There was some sort of moral to all of them, but all I remember is one where we climbed up and down a ladder and the script required me to drink a beer throughout the play. Like I say, what's not to like? I thought of bringing a beer here with me this morning, but I thought better of it. Let's go back to M. Walimu. A student minister with him was Robert Robbie Eller Isaacs, who was one of my best friends and colleagues. He had a very significant and meaningful career in the ministry and life cut short just about a year ago when he died of pancreatic cancer. The first words Robbie ever said in this room as a student, one Sunday morning after quietly gazing at the congregation, Robbie said, Arlington Street Church. Arlington Street Church. Arlington Street Church, Arlington Street Church. Somehow his tone and demeanor expressed not just the true significance of this flagship church for Unitarian Universalism, but hinted as well at ASC's sometimes inflated sense of self-importance and even grandiosity. And the same might be said of Robbie himself. There are more Robbie stories than I can tell. He once preached a sermon here that referenced some decision made by the Prudential Committee with which he disagreed. Afterwards, he was confronted by the magisterial matriarch parishioner, Dr. Matilda Moore, Tilly Moore, Tilly reproached Robbie saying, young man, never should a minister here preach about real issues. <laughs> okay then, <laughs> words for a minister to live by. Robbie kept ice skates in his office so as to make companionable pastoral calls in the wintertime while skating on the frog pond. Robbie crafted a memorial service here for the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. In it, he quoted poet Adrian Rich, whom Robbie referred to as one of the finest women poets alive. Immediately, hissing erupted, and Robbie was slow to get it. What should I say, he asked the congregation, poetess? The hissing continued. 
one learns not to mess with women at ASC. One thing Rebecca left out of my introduction was that in 1989, when Kim Crawford Harvey was called to be your senior minister, I was the runner-up. You got lucky. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> and I am pretty sure that Kim as well feels lucky most of the time. Soon thereafter, in Bedford, I succeeded none other than Jack Mendelssohn, and I had a good 31-year run there. But when I stepped down two years ago, I was a bit mopey and disoriented. Thus, I will always be grateful that Kim asked me to be one of your community ministers and suggested the fittingly important but a bit grandiose title of community minister for good trouble. George Whitehouse cracked, you always wanted to be a minister here, it just took you 33 years. I've been and may continue to be a bit aller allergic to preaching. I've been there, done that, but this portfolio has given me fresh purpose. Again, by way of George and Gaby, I was asked last July to speak at a rally in Copley Square protesting the attack by the white nationalist neo-fascist Patriot Front that injured black musician Charles Morell. You may have noticed that it was announced just last week that Morell is suing the perpetrators. At that rally in Copley Square, I joined my now friend and brother, Dr. Kevin Peterson, the founder of the New Democracy Coalition. Among NDC programs is the Faneuil Hall Race and Reconciliation Project. We believe that one entry point to issues of racial repair in Boston is to change the name of what we call Slave Traders Hall. Peter Faneuil was a rich Bostonian, a racist, and a white supremacist who enslaved and traded African men, women, and children, and whose entire fortune was dependent on molasses, rum, and the dehumanization of human beings. Boston's narrative, our economy, our culture, our history, none of this begins with the cradle of liberty, but rather with enslavement, misery, and profound moral injury. We would not erase Peter Faneuil's name, nay, we want his legacy to be better known and to change the narrative. We are the descendants not solely of the sons of liberty, but at the fundament, we are the descendants of enslavers and the sons and daughters of enslavement. We believe that Hall's present name chains us to the past when Boston remains deeply racialized and profoundly in need of truth-telling about the past and a hopeful and compelling new vision for the future. We do not propose any particular new name, though there are many possibilities. Rather, we want a grassroots process in Boston's neighborhoods. For too long, rather than engaging the people of Boston, decisions have been made by the rich and the powerful. And even with elected leaders who profess to be progressive, I am 
proud to side with those who strive for reconciliation, but also keep feet to the fire. Comfort, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. With Kevin and others of faith and conscience, I've had the privilege to be chained to the doors of Slave Trader Hall, to be arrested in the mayor's office, to moderate a forum on reparations in a Lexington synagogue, to participate in public readings of the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass, and again, more often than not, to be present on Sunday mornings in black churches, which are, I am sorry to still say, tragically estranged from and ignored by Boston's white churches, and where I am proud to speak and to be present in the name of this Arlington Street Church. Even Kevin got so wound up a few weeks ago that in a black church, he introduced me as the Reverend John Gibbons, community minister of the Arlington Street Baptist Church. <laughs> Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. My beloved spiritual comrades, my beloved spiritual companions. Jack Mendelson once said, the future of liberal religion is dependent wholly upon great congregations, whether large or small, and great effective ministers. The strangest feature of their relationship is that they create each other. I am well aware that with Kim's leadership for 35 years, great, great things have happened and continue to happen here. Great things have happened here for many decades, and I pray that they will continue for many decades to come. What matters here, however, is not the sole responsibility of those on this side of the pulpit. That's my big finish here, folks, so I'm going to repeat it. What matters here is not the sole responsibility of those on this side of the pulpit. One more time, somebody say amen. Amen. And you may be more comfortable seated for the benediction. Go ahead and be seated. Our closing words are again from the writings of Rob Eller Isaacs, Robbie Eller Isaacs. And they're in the hymnal, though they may be in the chat or in the order of service as well. In the hymnal, they're at number 637. And if you don't have the words in front of you, don't worry. Your part in this litany is a repetition, and I'll cue you as we go. This is called a litany of atonement. For remaining silent when a single voice would have made a difference, and this will be your part all along, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love.
For each time that our fears have made us rigid and inaccessible, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time that we have struck out in anger without just cause, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time our greed has blinded us to the needs of others, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For the selfishness that sets us apart and alone, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For falling short of the admonitions of the Spirit, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For losing sight of our unity, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. And finally, for these and for so many acts, both evident and subtle, which have fueled the illusion of separateness, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. Amen. Blessed be and May it be so. Take us out of here. <laughs> Go ahead and rise if you like. <laughs> Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.